All right, today we are moving forward in our eight essential elements of the Biblical Christian Gospel series. This is our 50th lesson, and we're moving on to element six today. What do you know? I still had two more messages on element five, but I decided to just put them in the book that we'll be writing hopefully in a year or two on it. Uh, so uh, if you look at uh, Roman, or Roman numeral one, you'll see the eight elements. I'm not going to review them, but we are moving on to element six, which is receiving Jesus Christ. And we are going to start looking at key biblical words for a while as to what it means to receive Jesus Christ. And, um, um, and, and, and particularly, we're going to learn look at biblical words that center around the doctrines of salvation. So the first 20 messages, we did the first four elements, then we spent tw uh, messages 21 through 49 on element five, bridging the gap. And we keyed on two verses, 1 Timothy 2, uh, 3 through 6, that in verse 5 says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And Matthew 16, 13 through 18, where Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? So that, And we made the point a number of times that... Um, not only for non-Christians, but for Christians, where you're at with God falls or rises on what you really believe in the fiber of your spirit, in your soul, your emotions, what Jonathan Edward called your affections, what you really believe about who do people say I am, about who Jesus Christ is, what your inner thoughts on Jesus Christ and your worship and love of him will determine everything in your Christian life. So... Uh, Spending 29 weeks studying Jesus is nothing. Uh, you should always be working on studying the Gospels and, and studying the fact that Christ is revealed in all of Scripture. That should be a major theme of your everyday studies all your life. Now, we looked uh, from elements 5a through h about eight weeks on what would be called the ontological Christology. That is the doctrine of ontology is the study of being, like who is Jesus in the Godhead. And then we looked uh, for 21 weeks at uh, what you might call the economic Christology, because uh, they talk about the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. That is, what is the ministry of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, in relation to the Father and the Son? We tend to think it, we're very human-centered and very man-centered in our understanding of the gospel today. And uh, of, of Christianity, we think very man-centered about the Bible and about things, and so we tend to think in terms of what does he do for me, <laughs> which is not at all the Bible's starting reference point. There should probably be a verse that just says, that maybe flashes in neon lights when you open your Bible that says, it's not all about you. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's not all about you. <laughs> anyway, so... Uh, Sing that to yourself. <laughs> All right, so um, there's some more recommended books that have to do with this new subject of receiving Jesus Christ. I listed six books there. Um, I've only read five of those six books, but the the one that is two books listed by the same author, I read the, the first one. So... Um, None of the books on that list will address all the issues in this series. That's kind of something I'm still searching for. I'm actually currently reading several books on, that are, uh, you know, there, there is an awareness uh, 
in Bible-believing circles, uh, somewhat among some small percentage of, of Bible-believing Christians, that the gospel we have in America today is not ha- doesn't have much to do with the Bible's gospel. And so there are an increasing number of books where people are trying to address the missing elements. I haven't found one that addresses it as much as we're doing in this series or even in the same neighborhood. However, there are some that will address many of the issues we're addressing in this neighborhood. Uh, That's really what Scott McKnight is trying to do in the King Jesus Gospel, and he hits a few of these things. So uh, last week we finished Element 5, and uh, I wanted you to note that in terms of Jesus... The Father handing all judgment over to the Son, and the Son saying that the word that I spoke will judge you. God is the, actually, his judgments are eternal. He is judging you every day. His mercies are new every morning. His truth is new every morning. Uh, Not that it's a different truth, but, but he makes it fresh to you every day and helps you see it clearly and so forth. And one of the big parts of what it means to be rescued by God is to, is to be born again, as we're going to look at now, starting to talk about receiving Jesus Christ, to receive a new nature, a new calling, a new purpose, new motivations and attitudes, to become a new creature in Christ, and to have God speak over you, this is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased." Now, one of the things we all struggle with, anyone who has a demon, anyone who has spiritual wounds, anyone who has various kinds of iniquity that are still controlling them, has competing voices saying a different message to you. That God is mad at you, that God is not for you, that, and so forth. And so, um, you need to understand that for, for the Christian, for those who we're going to look at how God calls and draws people, how he has an election and a chosen ones and he foreknows who's coming to him, but for his sons and daughters, even his chastisements are so that you can share in his holiness. He wants to give you more. He just happens to define more as first and foremost more of himself. That will have implications for more responsibility, more financial resources, uh, lots of things like that, maybe more kids. Uh, <laughs> he wants to entrust more to your stewardship, uh, but he wants to do it in such a way that you love him all the more in the process and that you're faithful and, and, and mature and re- responsible to him in the process. And the more you are, the more he will give you. But that doesn't mean that it comes without pain or suffering or, or anything. He, is a, he does judge us every day as a father would his own sons. And he doesn't, people, you know, uh, have lost this concept in this culture. You have to go back and read something like C.S. Lewis's 1950s books, like The Problem of Pain, for instance, or The Great Divorce. But anyone who really loves someone won't put up with low standards. If you love someone, you're not going to just allow them to meander into crooked character. You know, the path of least resistance makes both rivers and people crooked. So part of the good news is that he loves you, and he's speaking, this is my beloved son. Your pleasing to God is not based on how you're doing, it's based on what Christ has done for you. And when you receive that and begin to walk in that, the more you that becomes your reality, 
the more you'll bring forth the fruit of Christ-likeness, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of character. The more you'll embrace the daily crosses, the, the more you'll see in the midst of, oh, this is really a temptation. This is a chance to say, not my will, but thy will be done. You have chances like that every day. And you have chances to start not listening to the voice of our culture and its messages. So that was uh, what I was trying to get at last week. That could be a whole series. I'm probably going to actually rework that material and make it the new introduction to the Grace series. Because that is a fundamental change that has to happen to you in order to make any progress with God. You have to start listening to a different voice. And you have to learn how to begin to discern the voices of the serpent that come through the media, the advertising industry, maybe your toxic uh, person in your family who's full of guilt and shame and performance base or, or whatever, whatever wrong voices are speaking, God wants to set you free from being, being controlled by and influenced by the wrong voices and, and enable you to hear his voice. That's why spiritual disciplines are absolutely essential. Spending time with God in prayer and reading his word is the same as making out with your girlfriend when you're getting ready to get married. And, you know, like you'll sit at a coffee bar with your girlfriend and talk for 12 hours, but you won't spend time with your real beloved. So that was kind of last week. So today we're going to get into what it means to receive Jesus. And we're going to have a theme verse for this whole section I'm hoping this one will be less than 26 weeks. <clears throat> Not promising, but I'm thinking maybe like 10 or 15. We'll see. Uh, but our theme verse is going to be John 1, 11 through 13. He, speaking of Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So one of the things that tells you, reading the reverse negative, his people are supposed to receive him, but it's quite possible to be his people and not receive him. In fact, Revelation 3.20, when, when Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, he's talking to Christians there. That's not a verse for evangelism as we've made it in modern times. It's an address to the Ephesian church, the people who are already born again, baptized in the Spirit, baptized in water, and in a committed covenant community of Christians. And that's the people he says, Hey, I'm standing at your door and knocking. <laughs> if you hear my voice and bid me to come in, I will come in and dine with you if you could just kind of free up your schedule enough to ask me in. But that's what you, the choice you make every day. Do you have time for his word? Do you have time to sit at his feet? Do you have time to dine with him? That's a verse for Christians. I would suggest if you don't have time, then you're busier than God wants you to be. And you need to really look at your life and say, how do I, how do I uh, get some wrong priorities out of my life that are keeping me from faithfulness to attend at the, on the Lord's Day, my covenant community, from faithfulness to have daily spiritual disciplines, from faithfulness to, to share my life several times a week with the brothers and sisters in the community. Uh, if you're too busy for all that, then you're, then you're out of God's will. It's not that, it's a no-brainer. So, as many as did receive him, he who believed in his name, 
which is way more than intellectual sin. It means to cling to, rely on, trust, follow, enough to obey and take up your cross and embrace his life. To them, he gave the right, which is the Greek word exousia, we're going to talk about in a minute, to become children of God who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Now, the first time you were born, you were born of blood and of the will of somebody's flesh. Maybe, maybe more literally than I would hope to mean. But, uh, uh, but, but we're talking about people who were born of the will of God, born a second time. Not born of the will of men, but born of God. Now, so that's to receive him is what we're going to try to get after these next 20 or so weeks because that has become uh, some mamby-pamby, mealy-mouth, nauseous, like now I lay me down to rest kind of concept that is purely abstract and conceptual. It's devoid of content and reality. And it's, it's, if, it, if it doesn't change your life radically, then you haven't received him. The saddest thing that I know of in our day and age is that there are multitudes, multitudes in the Valley of Decision. There are tens and tens of thousands of people who go to Bible-believing church, churches who are not saved in any biblical sense of the term. And they haven't received him, and it's clear by their lifestyle. So, but they're being given great assurance. So let's look at this word receive. Now, there's approximately 14 different Greek words for receive in the Bible, by the way, that all get translated into our one English word receive. So that's a little bit, will help you with, well, gee, how is it that I receive the Holy Spirit when I receive Christ, but then I receive the Holy Spirit when I get baptized in the Spirit? Uh, that'll help you get through that uh, paradigm. So so forth. So because, in fact, when it says not receive him, that's uh, paralabano, whereas when they did receive him, that's lambano. And uh, it simply means this, to take, I want you to think about these words for a minute, Inter interact with them, get emotionally involved, mentally involved, get active with these words. Take, okay? Think of taking something. You can't passively steal something. Oh, I accidentally stole this. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, uh, it means to take. Where was I? I lost my place. Uh, to choose. You know, when you get engaged, you may you're choosing someone. Select to admit someone. Seize. That's a, the, kind of a military term almost. Let's seize the day. Carpe diem. Uh, lay hold of, associate with a companion. Isn't that interesting? It's a relational word. It's, it's used in connection with receiving someone. You know, when someone rings your doorbell, you can receive them or not receive them. You know, you can. some people will give you the, like, they step outside the door and talk to you on the porch because they're trying to say, I've got reasons I don't want you to come in. Now, they may be good reasons, like, I don't know who you are, and you seem a little dangerous to me. Or they could be bad reasons, like, our place is a mess, and I'm too embarrassed by it. And 
The kids are running around naked and they have their mother tied up in a chair. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I didn't want you to see all that. <laughs> but uh, um, you know, but uh, means to apprehend, to not let go, to not let go. There's, sometimes uh, in theology, there's a whole thing where you say what God isn't versus say what He is. Reach after, not to refuse or reject. It's an action verb. Get, get that. Violent men enter the kingdom of God by force. You have to seize it. You have to seize him. You have to lay hold of him. You have to grab a hold like Jacob did when he wrestled with the angel and he says, I'm not letting go until you bless me, which really in the Hebrew means until I have intimate fellowship with you and I'm changed by it. Do you have daily devotions or do you have experiences with God daily? That's a big difference. Because devotionettes make raisinettes. Do Do you get before God in such a way that your spirit is flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit by the time you leave your study? That's what it means to receive Christ, and you need to receive him every day. doesn't mean you get born again every day. But we're going to look at two aspects of receiving. One is the new birth, but the other is conversion. And you can get further converted every day. And you should. It's called sanctification, and it's called maturation. And if you're not growing, then you're losing ground. If you're not taking ground. Now... Uh, so, uh, receiving Jesus has two inextricably intertwined processes. The first is regeneration, which is also called the new birth, being born again. And it has very much to do, did I have a sense that my sins were cleansed? It's an experience. You should have a, you should have a subjective sense, as, as, the Eastern, or as Western people think of it. I don't like subjective and objective. I don't believe there is such thing as objective truth because God is the source of all truth and he's a person. So all truth is subjective. It's just that the right, the right subjective perspective is God's. All truth is relational. There's not abstract objective truths out there. There's just the truths of God in fellowship with him. And so all truth comes from God and when you're born again, you should have experiences with God that are concrete and tangible, and that you could say, you know, I used to get angry, but I don't anymore. Or I used to lust, but I don't anymore. Now, there are residual sin in the Christian life, and every Christian has experiences where God sets you free over time. But there should be some areas where you really say, man, God really changed this. And sometimes it should be quite supernatural and surprising. Like, wow, I never thought that would happen. Because God wants to, to t save you both ways all the time. He wants to save you through long-term clinging to, relying on him, where he changes you gradually over time. And he wants to change you from glory to glory as you encounter his presence. And his presence changes your reality and your perspective in mighty ways. And if you haven't had that, there's something very deficient in your understanding of the beginning steps of walking with Christ, and especially of your experience of the beginning steps 
of walking with Christ. Do you see? I, I hope you can see that. You have to become a new creature. You have to become, you know, I remember, um, you know, having a kid come up to me and ask me to buy some LSD or some pot and different things. And I said, you know, I don't do drugs. And he, and he looked at me and goes, aren't you Weiss? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but I'm not the same Greg Weiss. I, I received Christ. I was water baptized. The old Greg died. The new Greg is here. And the new Greg doesn't have it, know anything about that world. How would you like to join? <laughs> you know, I can take you to our leader. But, um, uh, you know, like people should go, like, you know, unfortunately I had a, a, a drug friend who was really into the Eastern, you know, soul travel things with LSD and stuff, and he's the one who introduced me to some of that stuff and spirit guides and all kind of demonic stuff. And even, you know, but he, it, but what's amazing is that even if someone rises from the dead, they don't necessarily want Jesus. He said very clearly to me one night, what, he goes, I am so amazed at how much you've changed and how much peace you have. It's clear that something really wonderful has happened to your whole life. And he was not interested in the lease, and he committed suicide a couple years later. Because those who hate wisdom love death. You know, the re there's a reason why, like, the death culture likes, you know, dark clothes and, you know, and spikes and any, and skulls and all that kind of stuff. Because those who hate wisdom love death. It's a culture of death. So, anyway, so receiving Jesus Christ necessitates being born again. Now, just like in the human experience, you are conceived at a certain time, and there's a gestational period, and you grow in the natural in an atmosphere of water. In the spiritual, you grow in an atmosphere of the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus means in John 3, 5, when he says, unless you're born out of water and out of the Holy Spirit. He's answering Nicodemus's question. Well, how can a man be born a second time? He can't go back in his mother's womb. He said, no, the first time you're born, you're born out of water. You grow up in a sack of 98.5% water called amniotic fluid. And when you're born, when the water breaks, <laughs> um, and, and all the gushing happens and all that stuff, then the, and the baby is born in that process, then you have to be reborn in, and you have to grow and develop in the same atmosphere of the Holy Spirit. That's why it is never your job just to invite your friends to church, but it is part of what it means to, to walk with people and help them. The more, the more they're wanting to fellowship with Christians, the, the more they're being drawn by God. That's a sure sign that God is working in their life when they want to come to meetings and worship and hear Bible studies and so forth. It doesn't necessarily mean they're a Christian. In many cases, even in our own church, we have quite a few people who are pre-evangelized who really haven't received Christ in, in a full biblical sense yet. So, uh, but in the natural... Because it's subjected to the rules of physics and chemistry and biology and the time-space continuum that God has created, that's why we can have science, because there's one God. The, um, therefore, the longer that baby goes toward the full 40 weeks, 
the more likely that baby's going to go through all the prenatal steps. Unfortunately, the spiritual dimension doesn't work like that. As long as most of the things that are supposed to happen in regeneration and conversion happen, they can happen occasionally when someone hears just a sliver of the reduced American gospel. I know people like that. You probably know people like that. You know, Ned Berube's testimony is, you know, I went to this church. I really hated these Jesus freaks. The church was terrible. I hated the whole thing. I went back the next week, and I hated it just a little less. And then the guy said, you could have a whole new life in Jesus Christ. And all he knew was his life was a disaster, and he needed a whole new life in Jesus Christ. That's all the gospel he knew, but he really got it. Now, that's a pretty poor way to share the gospel, uh, unless God does a miracle and they really get regenerated by it. You know, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Occasionally works, if God makes it work. Uh, but better off to give him a full explanation of the full gospel and, and work with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to see all of it engrafted and implanted in their spirit and their heart so their life is completely revolutionized by the kingdom of God. That's what we're after in this series, okay? So, after you're born again, there's a process called conversion. And conversion involves repentance, turning away from self-centeredness and man-centeredness, and to gradually have the affections of your heart and the ways of thinking of your mind and so forth become increasingly rooted in God and who he is and what his word says. To come, take a journey out of unreality into reality. That's what it means to be converted and to, be, and to start to go from beyond conversion to being sanctified. Now, here's what you need to understand when you're discipling and working with people if you're going to be ever effective in the ministry. Picture a dashboard of a car. And I'm going to turn around. So, you, so on the left, you normally have blue for the air. When it's, you want the full air conditioning, you put, you put the, or the dial turns all the way to blue, Right? You want it as cold as possible because blue is usually a color associated with cold, right? So on the far right, you normally have deep red because red is hot. So, you know, that's why girls who want to look hot wear red dresses sometimes. Uh, you know, like Pedro, is she hot? <laughs> uh, he, I, I don't think he was thinking like, is her temperature 101? <laughs> uh, so... Um, then as they go together, the red becomes slightly pink and eventually white, and the blue becomes slightly sky blue and eventually white, and they overlap. So as you're converted to Christ, a process of sanctification and maturation starts. Sanctification meaning to be set apart to God. So I'm giving you biblical terms that, aren't in, that you need to know that aren't necessarily in the points in the outline. I'm giving you about seven of them today, even though there's three points coming up if I get that far. So, uh, sanctification means to be set apart to God. That's what it means to become holy. God is the only holy one. That's why when we sing songs, holy, 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 we don't go like Stephen Leopold and Eric Kamau are holy. We might say they're making progress in becoming holy because thou art holy, and the more they touch you, the more they become holy. <laughs> right? Holy cow, Batman. So you get sanctified gradually, that is set apart to God. 
the motivations that are false and childish and foolish and immature and full of lust and full of disobedience and procrastination and all kinds of things that are negative for you god is rooting them out and filling sanctifying you with maturity that is like christ-likeness and where the process of conversion starts and sanctification takes over is kind of a tough thing to discern but what one of the things where you can definitely know is we're having trouble helping people grow in sanctification and maturation because their conversions are incomplete. That's what we're after in, in teaching this stuff. We're after you helping discern for yourself and for others you love to make sure the full conversion has happened so that the progress in sanctification and maturation could be normal. So that you don't have the same sins three years and five years and seven years after you're converted. So, and, and I'm not telling you there aren't going to be some areas of long-term struggle. That's why pastors have a saying, pride, money, and sex. They're like, Jesus said, the poor are. The poor are with you always. <laughs> you will always have to do, deal with Pride. I've never met a perfectly humble person. You know, the old joke, we gave, we gave the person the humility award, but then we had to take it away from them because they kept wearing the badge for it too much. But uh, <laughs> and pointing it out, look, I'm the, I'm the humblest guy in the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so, uh, um, you know, money, you have to, you have to have a stewardship of money. You can't just go, well, I'm swearing off money altogether. <laughs> now, you can do that with sex to some degree. You can be celibate. But you're still going to have sexual temptation in our country. And food. You're going to have to take your appetite toward food to the cross. Because it's not a good long-range plan just to give up eating. <laughs> Might be okay for a day two or three. Or sometimes longer if God calls you to that. But it's not a good long-term strategy. And by the way, if you're hoping in that, I will tell you from firsthand experience and from all the books I've read, you don't really lose significant weight when you fast because your metabolism gets better and better at shutting down and preserving the, uh, what fat you have. So you actually get, you lose fat by having the right relationship to food and exercise and sleep and so forth, stress and all the things that make you fat. It's a, it's a mark of maturity. It just happens in some areas, people can see your immaturity easier than other areas. <laughs> you can tell I struggle with food and exercise. I wear my credentials with me. <laughs> so, uh, that's why I, my favorite appointments are the people who will go walking with me. So, I have several people that I go walking with often and regularly. And so forth. All right, so let's move on. You get that, that there's receiving Christ involves those two things. Hopefully, let's get into three biblical words more. I'm not going to look up the Greek word for keys, but Jesus said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. And I want you to notice that I have it in the New American Standard in the Spanish. Um, or, no, I'm sorry, in the uh, Greek. <laughs> what am I saying? The Young's literal, but you should compare it to Spanish. Um, and here's what I mean by this. Um, my bad. <laughs> Look at the Young's literal. And I will give you the keys of the reign of the heavens, which is another way of saying the kingdom of God, a better way, probably. 
because it makes you encounter what it really means more. And whatever thou mayest bind on, on, upon the earth shall have been being bound in the heavens. And whatever thou mayest loose upon the earth shall have been being loosed in the heavens. Now this is what we don't have in English. In English we have three verb tenses. So we can't say concepts like have been being bound. And really the Greek actually means have been being bound and continuing to be bound. And we don't have one word that we can say that. I had to say a couple sentences to get that concept across, right? So in Spanish, those of you who know Spanish understand that there's the singular and the plural for every verb. There's first person, second person, and third person for every verb. And you learn how to conjugate them, and you got to memorize all six of the conjugations. Try Greek. There's, in Greek, there's over 129 conjugations for every verb. Because they have seven tenses, all three persons, singular, plural, Past, past, continuing, and past, uh, you know, past, present, and, and future continuing, and so forth, all in just the way they change the ending of the word. So, the New American Standard every, has um, one of the things, the reason I read four Bibles in parallel on my computer, New American Standard, English Standard, and New King James, is oh, as a general rule, those three are the best three English translations because they use the principle of literal equivalence. When they translate, not dynamic equivalence. Then I put my favorite dynamic equivalence translation called the uh, New English Translation to the right, and I compare those. But then I use the third column where the New King James is to change it to the Young's Literal, and the, 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 there's a new uh, Disciples Literal New Testament. There's the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Of course, the Revised Standard played very important historical roles in Protestantism and so forth. So I checked like 30 translations if I'm really interested in a word. And this, um, as a general rule, the, the, the advantage of the English standard over the New American standard is it's more concisely said, less uh, extravagant verbiage that makes it awkward to t say, uh, and, the, the, and the prepositions are translated generally more accurately, but the New American standard is unsurpassed when it comes to tenses and time words. So if you just know that, you'll get more out of reading those and, and so forth. So uh, generally, the English standards English is easier to understand. And if you're not a real scholarly person, you ought to start by just reading the English standard version. That's why we have it as our pew Bibles. It's a fantastic translation with easier to read English by far. They, that's what dynamic equivalence translations are going after, like the New International Version, which became so popular. But unfortunately, they take the, they take the content out so much in doing so. I'm not a fan, especially of the New International Version. So, with that being said, um, let's get into this. Um, because what we're trying to do in these, these upcoming weeks, we're going to look at words that are the keys to the kingdom. Now, you need to understand a Hebrew approach to these words, not a Greek. When the, when the gospel began to hit the Greco-Roman Empire, gradually what the church has struggled with since the 2nd and 3rd century and what has completely swept over evangelicalism is causing words to be a matter of doctrine and theology and abstract. But biblical words have to be experiential. 
You have to not just understand them in your head, but you have to ask God to work them into the fiber of who you are. You have to be changed by them. So it's one thing to understand. We're going to look at repentance for a whole week. We're going to look at seven, eight, I'm sorry, eight statements about repentance. And there's over 160 verses on repentance. And we're going to look at uh, 40 or 50 of them on one of the messages coming up. But what the key is, is you have to encounter that word every day. Because the kindness of God grants repentance. When you taste the kindness of God, when you spend time with him, when you experience him, when you realign yourself to grace every day instead of performance, when you don't go like, I just got to get my three chapters right or because God's a harsh God and he'll be upset at me if I don't get my performance done. When you do that, you're, you're not going to touch him. When you reestablish the whole thing of grace and hear him speak, this is my beloved son. Oh, I'm so happy to see you. I'm looking forward to spending time with you. He's more excited about you spending time in the word than you are. He's like, oh, here comes Chris again. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. That's me. Uh, you know. <laughs> Holiness unto the Lord. That's me too. You know. This is awesome. <laughs> you know, it's like, he gets into his, uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what's the word for uh, modern kids? Um, not, well, okay, maybe let's say hipster. You know, he, you know, like, oh, Tim Kelly's reading the word. Awesome sauce. <laughs> you, know, I'm just, you know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, I mean, that's really how God is. He's not how you think he is. So let's get into some words. Hopefully we can get through the word salvation in five minutes. Salvation saved, saved. That's the most common word that is misused for the concept of reconversion and regeneration. So we will actually say, when did you get saved? Are you saved? And I like to be so biblical that I'll say, yes, I was saved in, in the purpose of God from all eternity. And the atonement portion of that was worked out over 2,000 years ago, or almost 2,000 years ago. And God, in his great wisdom, preserved salvation in the people of Israel and continued it on to the people of, of Christ and the church and preserved his word through the centuries and so forth. And because he's been saving me for all these last 4,000 years. And I began to appropriate a part of it in regeneration and conversion 42 years ago. And by the grace of God, there's been some progress in sanctification and maturation, but at times I think it's a little disappointing, but he's a lot more encouraging than I am about assessing that. So I try to spend time with him so I can hear him talk to me like John Gray does. You're great. You're awesome. What a wonderful pastor. (laughs) And uh, so, you know, uh, and then I will be completely saved because I'm getting older and I'll be checking out in 20, hopefully 30 years. <laughs> and you're, some of you will have to have your sons carry the casket because by then you'll be too old too. But uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's like, are you saved? That's what salvation means. It's an eternal total concept. It's not just regeneration or just conversion or just sanctification, or maturation, but it's all the above and more. That's important for you to know. Now, that doesn't mean you have to correct every person that says, are you saved? Like, I pick my spots whether I have an audience with the person, and I've earned their respect enough that they want to listen. 
But that's a, that is just a very unbiblical thing to say. It's, it just is. Because there's lots of people that are not regenerated yet. They're not born again yet. They're not Christians yet. And they're saved because God is determined from all eternity. And they're going to find that out down the road. <laughs> they just don't know it yet. I used to, everybody likes to have a little humor when they're, when they're courting their wife and so forth. And I used to joke with Catherine, something that actually wasn't true, but it was fun to joke about. I used to say, chicks really dig me. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> get, get. So there's lots of people who are saved that just don't know it yet. So let's look at a couple verses on sal- salvation, and then we'll stop. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. Guess what? The New Testament starts with I believe it's 18 verses or 17 verses of genealogy. So this is like the third verse of content in the New Testament other than the genealogy of Christ. So right away, uh, Matthew, the father, because the father is who speaks the identity to a child and so forth. The father is the primary one to name because a name is a prophetic thing. You're saying you're going to be filled with joy. You're going to bring joy to thousands and joy to nations. I'd be happy for just almond joint. No, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, you're going to have faith or whatever. Your, your, your name is a prophetic thing. So the, the Holy Spirit reveals to Joseph in a dream that, that Mary's a child and she's going to have a name Jesus for he will save his, he will save his people from his, their sins. Because Jesus, Jesus in the Greek, whenever you have the I with this well, turning your way this way, then you don't pronounce the H sound in Greek. So, Jesus, um, because it means Yahweh is salvation. So, to receive Jesus is to receive the source of salvation. That's why Abraham prophesied when he told Isaac, God will provide himself the lamb. Because the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, is himself the salvation. And he brought deliverance from demons and healing of the sick, and he brought everything that has to do with salvation in himself. He arrived with it in, it's like the Prego principle. It's in there. (laughs) You know, it's a commercial. So, um... The Greek word, the verb, is sozo. That's why we have a thing that John and Emily do called a sozo, where they help you not just pray to receive Christ, but they bring the presence of the Holy Spirit and the teachings of the Word of God in practical ways to, for inner healing and deliverance and, and renouncing of things that you need to renounce to have legal right to break them off of you and so forth. And some of you have experienced that and been helped greatly by it. To rescue or deliver from danger or destruction, to make well, to restore... Now, Titus 2.14 says, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. Remember, grace is not, I'm giving you some other definitions for no extra charge. Grace is not just undeserved favor, but it's divine empowerment to be the people of God on their missional kingdom mission. Grace is when God makes you a world changer by first changing you. 
And he changes you so thoroughly that you change everyone in your path. The grace, that, that grace of God, not the mamby-pamby crud, uh, has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us the grace of God will teach you to deny ungodliness and worldly desire and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the pra- present age. Look at your finance and you'll, you'll understand like if you have grace. Like, look, do you live sensibly? Do you make wise decisions? <clears throat> so, and now notice the phrase in this present age. The gospel has become this erroneous message. Jesus wants to save you from hell, so receive him so you can go to heaven. No, Jesus wants to bring heaven into you now so you can live this way in the present evil age. To live above all of that now. The gospel is always about now, never about later. Later is only the product of faithfulness now. That's why it's not speaking works when it talks about how Jesus will judge every man according to their deeds. Because if you have true biblical faith, your deeds will change. Simple as that. You can tell whether you have to go. Don't try to just change your behaviors. Try to go, and oh my God, if I have all these ungodly behaviors still, there's more foundational problems. Get someone older in the Lord with, with manifest fruit. That's why we, we don't recognize certain people in this church to flatter men or flatter their eagles. It's to say, this person can help you. Get there because God took them there. That's why we have a leadership team. Because our leadership team is made up of real screw ups that are losers, fornicators, adulterers, blasphemers, and everything else that have received Christ and been changed and they've progressed far enough along, far enough along, I'm from the South, that, uh, that they can say, come on, let's do this together. Don't worry, I'll take you to our leader. <laughs> His name is Jesus, not Steph Curry. But, uh, <laughs> all right, so that, so that word salvation, uh, I wish I could go into more of these because this whole thing of purifying, is, you know, Leviticus 19.2, you shall be holy for I am holy, a people for his own possession. There's no salvation if you haven't become a part of a people. That's a lot more than going to church on Sunday. It's living in community. Zealous for good deeds. Are you zealous for good deeds? Or is everyone, every time someone wants you to mow a lawn, babysit, whatever, you're like hiding under, you know, oh, my, I know who's, I know if that person's calling, they're going to be asking me to do something. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not home. Uh, We'll just turn that one off. <laughs> we won't answer it. All right, zealous for good deeds. Salvation is an adjective in that form, and it's soterion, which we get the, the discipline in theology called soteria or soteriology, the study of salvation. Uh, the next verse, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I wish I could talk more about the word ashamed or in the word gospel and the word power, but... We'll talk about salvation to everyone who believes, and that salvation is the feminine noun, soteria, which we get soteriology from, the study of salvation. And it means deliverance from molestation of enemies. 
Do you know that your enemies are molesting you? Do you know that anger issues, unforgiveness, sexual, inordinate sexual desires, gluttony, the seven deadly sins, they're molesting you. And I don't know about you, but I've known a few fathers that if some guy was thinking about molesting their daughter, they would shoot him. Rise up and kill that molester. You have God's permission. I've met the enemy and he is us. Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. I wish I could develop this more importantly, but notice in the definition that it's material and temporal deliverance from danger and apprehension. See, it's not about the next life. Jesus came to save you spirit, soul, body. Your mind, your emotions, your affections, your will. If you're not changing all the time, you haven't received Jesus yet. You've just gone to church. And I'm hoping that over the next 25 weeks we can somehow reach those hardened hearts and break up that fallow ground and help people to receive Jesus Christ that need to receive him more fully. Amen.